this is an opportunity to do things better and to create better solutions, create better infrastructure, deliver better projects. There's no climate crisis without the biodiversity crisis. The, the things are so intertwined. This is a paradigm shift in the way that we think, in the way that we do business. It's all about collaboration, systems thinking and doing things differently. The Green Construction Board has recognised the need to update the past 2080 specification. And one of the key messages I would say for this past update is that systems is king and accelerated enablers for decarbonisation are king. Hello and welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Alex Conacher. And I'm Johnny Dowling. For this episode, we've partnered with Mott McDonald to explore new ways to deepen efforts to reduce global carbon emissions, to improve our natural environment, and to protect society from the impacts of climate change. What we discover is that collaboration is an environmental multiplier, meaning that aligning infrastructure needs with natural processes could take us towards net zero in a sustainable way. Net zero the point where greenhouse gases produced are counterbalanced by those that are removed has become a quest for countries all over the world as they strive to prevent catastrophic climate change by reducing global warming. The UK was one of the first to write this into national legislation in June 2019. But despite this, the UN Environment Programme reports that progress is not happening fast enough to keep global warming between 1.5 and 2 degrees centigrade. We have to do things differently. We have to address climate change. We have to reduce our carbon emissions. This is Dr Kim Yates. As an atmospheric chemist, she knows a lot about emissions. And as a climate change operational lead at Mott McDonald, she is supporting organisations in creating action plans to get to net zero. But this is not all that operators in the built environment have to consider. But this is set in the context of enhancing biodiversity and also making our assets, our life, resilient to climate change. And bringing all these three aspects together is key Carbon reduction, climate resilience, and enhancing biodiversity, also known as creating a biodiversity net gain. And the paradigm shift in our way of thinking and approaching is part and parcel of this. A paradigm shift where interventions that work with nature, known as nature-based solutions, and better collaboration could potentially unlock all of the benefits that organisations are looking for, reducing carbon, creating climate resilient assets, and improving biodiversity. We see bringing all of these three elements together in terms of nature, climate resilience and carbon reduction are key to impacting climate change going forward. But we are also aware that if it's not taken in the round, there can be some negative impacts. Yeah, exactly. I mean, these connections are so important. It's a joint biodiversity and climate crisis. There's no climate crisis without the biodiversity crisis. The, the things are so intertwined. Julia Baker is head of nature services at Mott McDonald, 
making her very busy indeed. The UK's Environment Act, which received royal assent in November 2021, contains the very important step of requiring that all developments must deliver a net gain in biodiversity of at least 10%. That's both projects that fall under local planning law and nationally significant projects permitted through a development consent order. This is expected to become effective for all projects requiring planning permission in late 2023 and for nationally significant projects from 2025. We achieve biodiversity net gain by following what's called the mitigation hierarchy. We seek to avoid to minimise our impacts on biodiversity, but it's a development project, so there will be some residual losses. And then we achieve a net gain by creating, enhancing, restoring habitats. Habitats sequester carbon. So the act of achieving biodiversity net gain will impact climate change. Now, if we're careful and if we have the right data and if we think about biodiversity net gain in the context of climate change, we can plant, restore habitats with high carbon sequestration rates will have a positive impact. But if we don't measure the impact on carbon and biodiversity net gain, if we just think about it in a very narrow perspective on biodiversity, we could have a negative impact. This is a very important point to consider as the new legislation comes into effect. I've seen biodiversity net gain projects where you have a young plantation woodland currently of low biodiversity value. Some of that is cleared for a development project and the biodiversity net gain enhances a degraded but more established woodland. Just thinking about biodiversity, that might be seeming to be a good outcome. But if that decreases carbon sequestration rates, that is far from any biodiversity net gain outcome because it's biodiversity net gain that's making climate change worse. We have to join the dots when it comes to development projects. Younger trees sequester carbon as they grow. This peaks as the tree reaches maturity when the sequestration rates fall and the carbon becomes locked in. So enhancing established woodland might seem better for biodiversity, and that woodland could provide an important carbon store, but planting more trees is needed to sequester more carbon over time. Planting trees for their high carbon sequestration rates can also be needed to balance out a decrease in carbon sequestration when developments clear trees. The point that Julia is making is that biodiversity net gain and carbon must both be considered. And this is something we're doing here at MOTS, constantly, continually looking at the carbon impact of biodiversity net gain and really embedding that in the biodiversity net gain design. This means understanding the carbon sequestration properties of different habitats to really capture the best benefits. So we have to find that magic place in the middle where we are achieving biodiversity net gain and then for restoring nature in that particular location, but also then balance that with the urgent need to sequester carbon, but to, to also establish habitats that will be the carbon sinks over time. It's a major, major challenge from what I've seen in the industry when it comes to asset owner organizations planning for their net zero interventions, including the sequestration element. It's quite interesting because the environmentalists and biodiversity experts are not necessarily involved from the beginning. This means that the carbon sequestration projects might miss opportunities to design in benefits to biodiversity. 
Maria Manadaki has spent the past decade working on low-carbon infrastructure. This has included co-authoring PAS 2080, the world's first specification for low-carbon management of infrastructure, and the first ever sector-wide route map to get to net zero created for the UK water industry. We've seen in the last few years uh, quite a lot of leading infrastructure owners being in the water sector or other sectors uh, to really put down concrete plans to decarbonize their operations and assets with a view to achieve net zero emissions in different timescales. They have also, some leading organizations have also embraced uh, specifications such as PAST 2080 that we co-authored back in 2016, which is essentially the how to do that, is the behavioral piece and how to systematically manage whole life carbon, such as setting targets, baselines, uh, challenge each other in the value chain, etc. Now, in recognition of how fast this field has been moving, because uh, I would like to quote uh, from some recent work we did for the Green Construction Board on progress for decarbonization in infrastructure in the last seven years, it's good progress, but not fast enough. We will link to this research in the show notes. So recognizing that and the fact that the landscape for net zero and decarbonization has been moving so quickly, especially in the last couple of years. Um, the Green Construction Board uh, has recognized the need to update the past 2080 uh, specification, which uh, we are involved as uh, co-authors. As Maria explains, the decarbonization landscape has moved very quickly and the PAS 2080 update encourages asset owners and in fact anyone involved in the built environment to think of their assets in the context of the whole system of infrastructure, buildings and the natural environment. And one of the key messages, I would say, for this past update is that systems is king and uh, accelerated enablers for decarbonization are king. And this means linking decarbonization to biodiversity net gain and climate resilience. You can have the most incredible infrastructure that's been engineered using the best you know, best available low carbon approaches, but it, it can still be incredibly vulnerable to climate related events. And in fact, the, all, all your good work and all your, your beautiful infrastructure can be wiped out by things like extreme rainfall, extreme temperatures, wildfire, sea level rise. Nikki van Dyke is a technical director and Mott McDonald's climate resilience lead. And so there's, you know, you can have the most perfect low carbon solution or you know, Julia, you can have a, you know, a beautifully designed biodiversity net gain solution. But if the resilience angle hasn't been considered, then you, you run the risk of having stranded assets or not making the return on investment or not delivering the performance or, or the, the solution that you intended to. For Nikki, natural solutions where the natural features of nature are engineered to solve societal problems, from river restoration to manage flooding and improve water supplies, to peatland restoration for sequestering carbon, are a way of combining these three disciplines, and for more on that see our show notes. The common thread or the common solution that, that, that pins all of those together is doing more with nature-based solutions, and that's where this sort of you know, this, the three the three pieces come together for me. And that's why it's so important that you know, Julia, we're doing this work to understand how climate change in future is going to affect what we're designing now, whether that be infrastructure, whether that be a biodiversity net gain habitat, actually making sure that we understand how the future is going to change and what that means for what we're designing and, and, and creating right now is so important. That is not to say that natural solutions can solve every challenge. 
there are limitations on what is possible. One of the main challenges I see, as at least as an engineer, is the fact that we're relying too much on sequestration of carbon from natural solutions. That's going to happen overnight, but this could take years and decades. Okay, peatland restoration might be a more of a quick winner, but uh, it's very, very important to really hear the science behind these things and uh, plan them jointly. We don't have all the answers. So yes, you know, we need to know the data. So it's us, but also working really closely with, with academics, with universities. We'll use what you've got now, but we do need better data and we need to get that more. And there's that kind of collaboration as well, you know, feeding back in terms of real time. What is the carbon sequestration rates of regenerative farming? I don't know that because we've got Natural England published data on the carbon sequestration of intensive farming, but there's a whole host of sustainable farming out there that we need to know the data. Regenerative farming focuses on preserving the health of the topsoil, regenerating it and supporting biodiversity and nutrient growth. By doing this, it increases the amount of organic matter in the soil, in the form of fungal and bacterial microbes and decaying plant and animal tissue. There are lots of local factors influencing the soil sequestration potential, meaning that data to estimate this is scarce. And for me, from a resilience perspective, it's making sure that the right people have the right data at the right time to come up with better solutions. Because I think you know, we have in the past had a tendency to think about things in silos. And some of this resilience or, or, or net gain or it has been seen as a bit of a, an add-on or a bolt-on or something thought about too far you know, in, in down the line in the life cycle. So even when there is good data, such as on climate change, it isn't always used early enough. We do have great data, for example, in the UK on projected climate change. We have really excellent you know, data on how climate is going to change. And there, you know, there are people in MOTS and, who understand that data and can interpret that data. But making sure that's done early enough in a project and that data is shared widely enough with those who are actually designing infrastructure assets or biodiversity net gain habitats is what's really important. From a decarbonisation perspective, uh, the key data to really understand is the, around the sequestration rates of carbon, in uh, especially in nature-based solutions, and the uncertainty associated with those sequestration rates, because we understand it depends on the location, the species, uh, the operation, the climate, the microclimate, etc. We really need to understand the uncertainty behind those so we can compare them with actual emissions and understand the net picture of the net zero. And this is quite important because a lot of the times when we're talking about engineered solutions being sequestration, being uh, actual assets uh, to to meet the performance outcome, we are relatively certain of those emissions. But when it comes to the net bit of net zero, the sequestration using nature-based solutions, this is where the performance uncertainty or sequestration rates uncertainty comes in. And it's very, very difficult to put a solid business case and essentially invest. Nikki, from a from a climate resilience perspective, I'm assuming that's the same same type of thing that you have to look at, particularly if you're ending up with um, hard surface surfacing and things like that. Yeah, so from, that's right, Kim. From a resilience perspective, we're really looking at how um, well we're looking at two things. First of all, how a change in the physical environment, i.e., the climate, is going to affect a piece of infrastructure over its lifetime, but also how that piece of infrastructure might contribute or reduce, in some cases, 
climate resilience. So if you are putting large areas of hard hard surface down, for example, what impact does that have on um, on 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 flows of water, hydrology, flood risk, for example, or in an urban context, how does that contribute to things like urban heat island effect? You know that there there are these two sides of of the of the resilience kind of coin that we have to think about, not just how the external environment is going to affect the asset over its lifetime, but also how the asset itself may affect the climate resilience in, in its surroundings. And I suppose this this leads me to the question for you, Julia, because Nikki will be looking at what's happening from a climate resilience perspective in terms of water flows, etc. Does that feed into what you're doing now for biodiversity net gain? Yes, very much so. You know, and I think it's it's that point about matching the data on climate modelling. You know, so this site that we have for biodiversity net gain here and now might be a certain climate, but what are the likely extreme weather events in terms of frequency, duration, and what are those? But also the climate change over time and matching that with the good data that Nikki talked about with the expertise to help us interpret that. But also with, with net gain, it's a really interesting point because net gain is pretty specific. You know, if we put in a woodland to achieve net gain, down the line, if it's a pond, that's a completely different biodiversity outcome. So we have to be aware of that. Julia says that to really get to the heart of this issue, we need more collaboration and data to create a standardised process like that which was created for carbon management in the PAS 2080 specification. PAS was a milestone. You had a standardised, you had a process, this is how I do it. And it's raising our professional standards because they too, and I'm guilty of this, I've been involved in the biodiversity net gain standard, they too are pretty siloed. This means systemic change is needed in industry and at a policy level to make sure that policy, consenting systems and technical standards are joined up. We need to join the dots between our professional standards and we need to join the dots within policy. If policy is coming out with biodiversity net gain, link it to climate change. If policy is coming out about net zero, and and we, we hear those discussions around the policy, but when it comes to the hard wording in the Environment Act, what is it saying about biodiversity net gain being climate resilience? And I think those of us who've been working in the, the net, net zero space is that one of our key issues is that policy hasn't caught up with us. It's, it's everything that we're doing is, is beyond compliance. You're not made to build in climate resilience to be actually resilient to climate all the way through. Um, also, you're not made to look at your carbon within your infrastructure, though that's quickly catching up now. Same with biodiversity net gain. So as you say, policy is is literally catching us up for what needs to be done in the future. And this is where industry can make a difference, says Maria, in demonstrating to policymakers where the gaps are and crucially how these can be closed. We as an industry need to show that leadership to engage more strategically with government and regulators and, and explain to them the dilemmas or trilemmas or whatever you want to call this that we're facing. Because at the moment in the UK, as an example, you have uh, the national legislation for net zero by 2050, all emissions. You have some really good policy instruments, especially for the energy sector and 
you know, like especially heat, electricity, renewables and others. But when it comes to other sectors, like, for example, the water sector I'm closest to, which falls under the industrial sector in the six carbon budget, there isn't an official remit for net zero to be regulated in that sector. This is critical because regulated industries can only invest in measures that are required by law, which could prevent some opportunities for decarbonisation and climate resilience across sectors. I'm talking about the more transformational systemic opportunities that we've seen exist, such as exporting waste heat and uh, utilising it in uh, district heating systems or industrial uh, facilities. But without the right incentives, then none of none of these things will happen quickly enough so that we meet our targets. And that's why it's so important when we're talking about systems. It's not only the physical system of the assets, but it's also the system of regulation, the system of government, of policy, of uh, different stakeholders in the value chain. Yeah, so I'm a little bit sceptical of the pace of progress in this space. But this is where the real opportunities to make a difference lie. I'm excited because that's for us. Just like as professionals, you know, we can really make this happen. We've seen this like with your work on 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 the carbon standard with biodiversity net gain. And yes, in, in a way you have to you have to get biodiversity net gain right. You know, we, we have to, but we cannot wait any longer to not link it to the climate crisis, to not link it with climate resilience, because otherwise it won't be right. It's just as simple as that. I, I really like that that way of thinking, Julia. Actually, this is an opportunity to do things better and to create better solutions, create better infrastructure, deliver better projects. So seeing it as an opportunity to do better rather than seeing it as a threat or a risk to be managed to me is, is really important. And this is where infrastructure development can create very powerful benefits, such as improving the ability of an area to act as a carbon sink. Julia has seen this work on projects that are embracing this collaboration. The original site footprint did have a lot of intensive agricultural farmland, you know, quite low grade, but intensive agricultural farmland. And if you model that according to Natural England's published data, you do see a decline in carbon sequestration over time. So if nothing was done in this area, the site would have naturally found its carbon sequestration rates falling. Bringing together carbon sequestration and biodiversity net gain specialists very early on led to a solution that brought both ecological and carbon benefits. Historically, there was woodland in that location, so they wanted to restore woodland in that location. They picked particular species that had really good carbon sequestration rates. That combination of experts around the room, the biodiversity experts choosing that particular woodland, restoring that woodland that we sort of see on historic maps, mapped with the carbon experts to do something under biodiversity net gain had a positive carbon result at the end of it. But also, and that is truly biodiversity net gain, you know, that, that really, really is. But whilst at the same time, you're developing your asset in a low carbon way. And this is, again, where, where Maria and all her expertise in terms of um, designing waste treatment plants for, for low carbon outcomes comes into play. And Nikki making it climate resilient at the same time. This is particularly important considering that over 70% of the infrastructure that we will have in 2050 has already been built. Adaptation is critical. 
making our existing infrastructure more resilient is is one of those really big challenges to be honest because so much of infrastructure that we're going to rely on for many years to come is already in existence it's already there and it wasn't necessarily designed to be resilient to the conditions that we're either seeing now or that it will be exposed to over its lifetime an awful lot of thinking has to go into you know, working out well what what do we need to do to make sure that the water keeps coming out of the tap or the trains keep running and and looking for those solutions that and some of them can be really simple actually really straightforward so you know, we looked earlier in the year there was um this year we had record uh, temperatures in the summer and there's a quite an interesting sort of bit of work done looking at the effect on railway and the temperature on on rails and some of the solutions actually to rail overheating are very straightforward it can be something as simple as painting sections of line white you know that's not a high tech solution that's quite you know you can do that that's that's easy to do and then it ranges all the way up to the very much more technical more complicated more you know uh, costly um solutions but i think when you know addressing this question of retrofitting we've got to look at those the simple straightforward solutions as part of a package with the longer term bigger more transformational investments which are needed as well timing is everything you don't necessarily have to do everything right now but you do need to know and you do need to be aware of what's required and when so having this sort of this long term approach to planning and investment and when you make certain interventions from a resilience perspective is really important so we call it, you know, a lot of the talk is about adaptation pathways so you need to be ready and agile enough to be able to change your pathway when when something you know, warrants it if there's a change in climate that's such an important point for biodiversity net gain because we might say well look this area might be too flooded for woodland so do we just go to something else completely like a reed bed or do we stick with woodland but build into the management plan those checks those thinking and build in you know okay maybe make a mosaic of wet woodland or, or you know just um there might be something we can do with drainage you know it's like when do we give up on that or when do we you know literally go with a changing environment because that wet woodland will be more resilient over time this brings us back to how the framework for managing climate resilience, biodiversity net gain and carbon sequestration could work. It has to be flexible. Increasing the flexibility around how these how you know, how sites or how features are, are monitored is, is is really important for building resilience and and net zero and not necessarily trying to conserve or protect or um, maintain something in perpetuity but actually having the flexibility within legislation and, and regulation that says actually we can accept some degrees of change or we can accept that what we're looking for here overall is, a, is an increase in biodiversity net gain whether that is through a woodland or through a pond or through a reed bed or through a heathen it, the flexibility around actually you know we don't have to keep the same thing in the same place in perpetuity actually what we're looking for is outcomes and we can achieve those outcomes in 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 different in different ways the other danger of carrying out work in a market where policy and standards are immature is that of greenwashing being able to make claims about the sustainability of projects because accountability is vague Greenwashing has been associated with uh, decarbonization for a few years now, especially recently, and especially since SBTI. The science-based targets initiative. Put the first official net zero definition out there just before COP26. 
COP is the world's biggest climate event, and the Conference of Parties 26 was held in Glasgow. And uh, the reason for that is that organizations may want to pick and choose the types of emissions. Oh, they can only control or they can only manage or they're easier to tackle. And they say, oh, I've got an ambitious decarbonization strategy. And for somebody who doesn't know, and especially the marketing behind any such uh, kind of efforts and publicity, uh, might really misinform the public and people who are not in this space uh, saying, oh, this organization is net zero or they have all these plans uh, available, etc., etc. This could mean that the company has simply offset its emissions and not actually reduced its carbon output. But the good news, as the agenda has been moving forward, but there is need to be more effort, is the, the role of standards um, and the role of credibility in this space. And um, especially on the sequestration element and the offsets, it's still a voluntary market globally. But uh, the more they become more adopted by different governments and put into legislation or create more credible markets for those, the better and the less greenwashing. So it's all about, for me, to avoid greenwashing, it's all about having an evidence-based approach and quoting the most credible standards or guidance out there rather than just making claim which can, backed by good marketing can easily misinform people. And I think I think we're all agreed with that is that we we do see a lot of greenwashing in our day to day lives. And again, if you don't have the data to back it up or the understanding to back it up, you do sit there thinking, oh, well, they're, they're wonderful. They're getting it all done. If you know, if you understand what you're trying to do in this region, um, in this realm, mm. it's it's tough. It's really hard to get that balancing act just right. I mean, what what about in terms of net biodiversity gain and and climate resilience? Yeah, there's a huge risk. There really is. And I think if we so under mandatory biodiversity net gain in England, it will be measured by the biodiversity metric by Natural England. If we if we purely rely on an Excel spreadsheet to measure the success of biodiversity net gain policy, then you know it will just fall down because this is about habitats and it must be first and foremost a habitat design and a long-term management plan backed up by a sideline which is the metric from a resilience perspective this is something for which hard targets can't really be set it's a much more difficult thing i think to define whether that makes the risk of greenwashing greater or lesser um, is an interesting question Nikki says that the risks, therefore, come into the impact of this infrastructure on the wider system. Does it increase flood risk locally or does it increase urban heat island effect locally? There, I think there is something you know, to, to discuss, to think about, and there is a risk of, of greenwashing if you've got you know, potentially uh, making claims about how resilient something is. But actually, you know, do we understand in this system what that asset or what that project is going to do in terms of the wider wider system resilience. I think that that is an area where there is a risk you know, of, of greenwashing occurring. But it's a really good point because coming back to it, the other side of greenwashing is when, because we haven't measured everything, we're, we're with, you know, we genuinely think, say, this biodiversity net gain design 
will be a net gain for biodiversity, but we haven't measured the carbon sequestration impact of it. We haven't embedded climate resilience. So if you like, it's an it's a unknown greenwashing, and that's actually what I worry about the most. I think that takes us right back to where we started around the importance of collaboration and, and doing these things jointly. So it, doing these things in silos is what is where the risk where the risk really comes from, isn't it? And the more we collaborate and work on these things together, I think the more we are likely to to actually you know meet these multiple objectives. From policy to regulation to working in an interdisciplinary way within businesses to researching and gathering the data needed to understand mitigation measures for the climate emergency, collaboration is the key to unlocking net zero. I'd like to bring into, into the realm the uh, Sustainable Development Goal number 17, which is all about partnership in the goals, working together. It is key that we think about low carbon infrastructure, climate resilience and biodiversity net gain as one entity. We need to be working, doing that, that very difficult balancing act. Within MOTS, we're very, very lucky that we have the right expertise to be able to do that and to start those conversations early particularly when we look back to the work that Maria has been doing over the years with the Infrastructure Carbon Review way back in 2013, that showed that very, very clear relationship of cut carbon, cut cost in the infrastructure sector and got everybody thinking that way. I think now it's the opportunity to think about, think early about climate resilience, net biodiversity gain. It will actually save cost in the long run. It will stop having stranded assets and it is the way forward. Again, this is a paradigm shift in the way that we think, in the way that we do business. It's all about collaboration, systems thinking and doing things differently. Engineering Matters is a production of Reby Media. This episode was written and produced by Bernadette Ballantyne, hosted by me, Alex Conacher. My co-host was Johnny Dowling. Sound Engineering by Ross McPherson. Series Supervision by John Young. And our own natural collaborator is Rory Harris. Special thanks to our episode partner, Mott McDonald, and thank you for listening. You can find us on all podcast apps, on our website, engineeringmatters.reby.media, on Facebook, on Twitter, and on LinkedIn. 